Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hi, I'm Ron Barr, and this is today's edition of Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast on the 8Side Network. Sandy Alderson joins us on Sports Byline. I've known Sandy for 40 years. He's one of the most successful executives in Major League Baseball. And shortly after the Haas team bought the Oakland A's in 1980, Sandy joined the team as their general counsel. And shortly after that, he became the vice president of baseball operations. He helped rebuild the A's into a team that won three pennants and the 1989 World Series against the Giants. Also, he went on to become the executive vice president of Major League Baseball Operations, CEO of the San Diego Padres, where they won back-to-back division titles, and the GM of the Mets, taking them to the National League pennant and their first World Series appearance since 2000. Sandy, let me start by asking you about your father, John Alderson. He was an Air Force pilot who flew missions during World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. What did you learn from him? Well, I think that, uh, you know, what I, first of all, um, was proud of was the fact that he served his country and did it uh, over three different conflicts. And um, so there was a certain level of patriotism and commitment to service uh, that existed in our family. But, you know, my dad was not uh, political. He wasn't, uh, you know, somebody who spent a lot of time thinking deeply about issues. Um, He liked to have a good time. He loved baseball. Um, And uh, I really respected him in my later years uh, just for his commitment to the family. He really enjoyed the family. He loved being around the family, and he was uh, always terrific to to all of us, including uh, his grandchildren and uh, uh, others around him. So uh, he was just a wonderful person and somebody who had a great sense of humor, loved people, and uh, there were no errors about him whatsoever. What's the best piece of advice he ever gave you, Sandy? Stick with it. You know, uh, <laughs> persevere um, and, and and carry on. And I, there's a there's a story that I've I've told a few people, including a past commissioner, uh, when things got difficult, and uh, you know there were people pinging on him from various directions. I I I, 
I said, you know, my dad was a B-24 pilot in World War II, and um, when they got in their box formation and flew to Germany, there was no turning back. There was no uh, uh, diversion from a particular course. You got there, uh, you got to wherever the target was, and you came back, but it was kind of a straight line. And you couldn't be deterred by anything that, you know, came up from time to time around you. You just had to persevere. And uh, you can imagine sitting there for five or six hours uh, with flak and um, enemy aircraft, but you just got to keep plowing forward. And uh, so that was, you know, that was a story that I, that certainly um, stuck with me. And, um, you know, whether you're running a marathon or uh, – <laughs> have a legal career or work in sports broadcasting, um, sticking with it, perseverance can be an incredibly valuable quality. You graduated from Dartmouth, later getting a degree in law from Harvard, and in between you were an officer in the Marine Corps and you served a tour in Vietnam. Tell me a little bit about your military and Vietnam experience and how you have been able to use that along the way. Well, the, the, I didn't get to... Uh, um, Vietnam as a Marine until 1970, and things were kind of slowing down at that point, which was a good thing. I had actually previously gone to Vietnam twice uh, as a quote-unquote foreign correspondent, which is a whole different <laughs> story. But, uh, but um, uh, you know, the service in, in, uh, in Vietnam was, it was at an interesting time because there was not a lot of uh, contact. There was not a lot of enemy contact at the time. And one of the things you really had to guard against was complacency, um, not being prepared, simply because there were long uh, lulls between um, actions. And I'm reminded of that uh, today, that, you know, as we go through this uh, coronavirus pandemic, uh, and, and where we are today, four or five months after this all started, what's creeping into us as a, as a nation and, and society is complacency. And we see that in the way certain people continue, you know, are conducting themselves today as opposed to you know, wh- maybe three, four months ago. To me, complacency is the biggest risk we have now with this pandemic because um, – yeah, we haven't gotten it. I'm not going to get it. I'm young, et cetera, et cetera. Um, when you let your guard down, that's when bad things happen. I've got to share with you, uh, since we're heard on the American Forces Network worldwide, and they've been with me for 31 of the 32 years I've been doing this network and show, um, I've had the opportunity to take Sports Byline and some of my athlete and coaching friends with me over to Iraq and Afghanistan uh, South Korea, Guantanamo, uh, those type of places. And I've been to Iraq and Afghanistan a number of times. So the first time I go in, Sandy, into uh, Iraq, uh, I'm there one day and I break my leg in Saddam Hussein's swimming pool. Now, how many people do you know that can claim that they <laughs> broke their leg at Saddam Hussein's swimming pool 90 minutes before they're supposed to do their first show? <laughs> there aren't that many. 
you're absolutely right about that. But I will say this: the one thing that I, the one thing that I appreciated, and I've said this on the air, it's the best thing I've ever done in my career, because my parents, uh, my father was in the Air Force, and so I know what that uh, military family experience is like. And I, um, I, I got to tell you, being with them uh, in the seven times in Iraq and five times in Afghanistan, and being over there and doing it. Uh, I saw things there, aside from just the military aspect of it, meaning combat situation. I, I found something about the soldiers uh, that I don't think the average person would understand. You having been a soldier and then going on and being someone very successful in baseball, I'm just wondering what you saw from that perspective. You know, a lot of people believe that the, the military is uh, highly structured, highly disciplined, um, um uh, doesn't allow initiative or individuality and i really found exactly the opposite there is structure there is discipline there's a framework but within that framework young soldiers officers are given a tremendous amount of latitude to exercise judgment that's really what the military does i think is teach judgment and uh that's what leadership is about and if you're going to foster leadership you have to give people a certain amount of flexibility to exercise it so i think what most people don't understand is that when soldiers uh get out of the service and are coming back to the civilian sector they've had a tremendous amount of uh responsibility and accountability for their actions over a long period of time there's no more professional group of people than those that come out of our military and uh and secondly, what's important about the military is the diversity that it represents. Uh, you can't go into the military and not deal with people unlike you. And that's a great thing. It's a great exposure uh, at a young age. Uh, too many people, you know, go to college, go to graduate school, get a job, and are not really exposed to um, all aspects of our society, all um, socioeconomic groups. The military um, does that to an extraordinary level. And um, that's why I think, you know, among other things, military service is so valuable. We've got about a minute before we have to break here, Sandy. But uh, when you think about your transition after you come back uh, out of the military and make it into baseball with the Oakland A's, tell me a little bit and briefly, I want to hear your side of the story as how you go from being a lawyer to being somebody in Major League Baseball. Well, you know, I was fortunate uh, that I ended up uh, in a law firm in San Francisco uh, with Roy Eisenhart, who was also a Dartmouth graduate, had also been a Marine officer. And I ended up doing a lot of work with Roy, uh, considered myself sort of his uh, mentee, protege, what have you. Uh, I had a little bit of a background in baseball. I played a little bit in college. Uh, but, you know, it was more of a fan than anything else. Um, Roy brought me over to the A's uh, about a year after the Haas family bought the team. And it was, you know, a matter of circumstances that led to me becoming the head of baseball operations after being general counsel. Uh, I had absolutely no experience whatsoever <clears throat> in the game, uh, you know, at the professional level um, as a business or as, as a sport. But I think what 
Roy had confidence in was that I had good judgment. Uh, I didn't have a lot of experience, didn't have a lot of knowledge, but I wasn't going to get ahead of myself uh, that I, you know, was pretty decent at um, making decisions. And, and honestly, growing up as a military brat, highly adaptable. So Roy took a chance on me, but uh, I think did so based on what he thought were character um, aspects of, of my background rather than professional ones. Sandy Alderson is with us on Sports Byline. We're talking about his life and also about his career in baseball as a very successful executive. We continue across the country and around the world. We've got you on Sports Byline. You're listening to Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more... Right now, you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Sandy Alderson is with us here on Sports Byline, executive at the Major League Baseball Commissioner's Office, also general manager, operation executive as well in Major League Baseball with not only the New York Mets, but also with the Oakland A's. And uh, also with San Diego Padres as well. When you uh, were trying to develop the Oakland A's, I know that uh, there was a lot to to develop because Charlie Finley had owned that team, and it has really gotten you know down as far as talent and everything. And you really rebuilt uh, that minor league system. And I'm going to mention some names here, and I want to get your thoughts about the system and also these names: Jose Canseco, Mark McGuire, Walt Weiss. Well, they were all rookies of the year. Um... Uh, they were uh, two of them. McGuire and Weiss were first round picks, very successful uh, first round picks. Canseco was a young kid out of high school who was taken, uh, I'm not sure, the 10th round, maybe the 15th round, somewhere in that range. So it was a, you know, a, a great selection by a scout by the name of Camilo Pasquale, who was a great pitcher for uh, the Minnesota Twins and the Washington Senators in, in his day. Um, you know, the farm system really uh, blossomed over the early 80s. Part of it was draft picks. Part of it was some trades that, that uh, we made. But it was really an important part of uh, our development. We had, if you go back and look at that 89 team, there were, you know, homegrown players, Steinbach, McGuire, uh, Weiss, um, but and Conseco, but there were uh, and Ricky Henderson, but there were also trades. Um, Carney Lansford came in a trade. Uh, Tony Phillips came in a trade. Uh, Ricky Henderson, homegrown, but had come back to us in a trade. Uh, Dave Henderson, um, um, Dave Parker. So it was a team made up of 
again, players developed and uh, players who were uh, acquired by trade. But the reason Tony Larusa actually agreed to manage us, I think, had to do with the strength of our farm system. When uh, when he came to manage us in '86, <laughs> I flew to Chicago to try to talk him into it, and uh, uh, I took Carl Keel with me, who was um, our head of player development, just to try to give Tony a sense of the talent that we had in the minor league system at that time. Because in 86, the only one of those players who was at the major league level was uh, Conseco. Um, I think Steinbach was a little bit later. McGuire came the following year, twice in 88. Um, So uh, the farm system at that time was really important to us and and was was one of the reasons we were able to get Tony LaRusso to be a manager. I know that uh, you began focusing on sabermetrics principles toward obtaining relatively undervalued players, and that was something that certainly was not being done in baseball. What did that mean? What were sabermetrics? What could they do for you, and what could they do for baseball teams? Well, in those days, this was the early 80s. Um, One of the reasons that, that I adopted analytics as an approach was because I didn't have any experience in the game to approach it any differently. I didn't have scouting experience. I didn't have player development experience. So in terms of evaluating players, um, I really didn't have a foundation. And analytics, um, analytical concepts were becoming more publicized in those days, not utilized, but at least publicized by people like Bill James. They appealed to me just because of their mathematical certainty, if you will, um, uh, statistical probability. The problem in those days was there was no data to back it up. They were mostly concepts. Uh, but the concepts appealed to me, um, and, and the mathematics um, seemed to be um, uh, correct. And so, you know, we kept it quiet. We didn't, uh, we didn't publicize what we were doing, but the concepts um, uh, we adopted in the early 80s. So, for example, Mark McGuire in 1988 was basically a money ball draft, not in terms of uh, uh, undervalue, but in terms of what value represented. And that was on-base percentage and power, and that's what McGuire was. Uh, He was an on-base guy, a good eye at the plate, who hit the ball out of the ballpark. And those are two of the essential elements um, of analytics that have been borne out to this day, which is one of the reasons that we have the game we have today. It's a power game. It's an on-base game, and that's because of the analytics. Uh, in some ways, it's unfortunate because I think it's eliminated a lot of the uh, alternative strategies in the game. When I first started I remember uh, Earl Weaver was managing the Orioles. He loved home runs. Uh, But there was a guy named Gene Mock who was managing in Philadelphia. He was later with the Angels. And he was a guy who bunted and hit and run all the time. And, you know, the, the, the analytics will tell you that Earl Weaver was right and Gene Mock was wrong. But the difference today is that there are no Gene Mocks. There are no alternative strategies, uh, whether right or wrong. There's only one approach, and so some of the you know tactical and strategic elements of the game have disappeared. And I, I 
uh, I, I lament that in many ways and, and actually believe we need to change some of the rules to bring some of that uh, alternative strategy back. But in order to do that, those alternative strategies basically have to have the same probability of success as the existing strategy. That's the only reason. That's the only way that clubs will adopt them, so, and that that's what requires rule changes. But the analytics are with us. They've been with us since, you know, probably long before me. But I I did adapt them and uh, adopt them and implement them in some decision making. And then, you know, with the Moneyball book and and movie, everybody came to understand sort of exactly what was involved and how it fit together. And that's why we are where we are today. I want to briefly talk about the fact the 1970s, of course, the A's going to the World Series very successfully as a team. And, of course, while you were there, you had the chance to go to three World Series. You won three American League pennants and also one World Series. That was the 1989 World Series. And I think for anybody like myself and you and others that live in the San Francisco Bay Area, remember how unusual it was. 5.05 in the afternoon of that first game. I'll never forget it. I was doing a sports report on a local radio station and all of a sudden things started moving and I thought, well, it had been very hot. Maybe the wind has picked up a little bit. Well, it wasn't the wind. It was an earthquake. (laughs) And when you look back on that uh, 1989 World Series, just briefly tell me the things that still stick in your mind about it. Well, um, I'm happy we won. And uh, (laughs) I don't say that lightly. I think you know, given everything that happened in the Bay Area, one of the things that we really felt strongly was that we had to do everything we could to try to win that series uh, in spite of all the hardship uh, law and loss that uh, resulted from that earthquake because, you know, 50 years later, people would remember whether we won or lost, and we owed that to our fans. So consistent with the circumstances and being, you know, properly deferential to what was going on in the city uh and cities in the bay area you know we felt a real obligation to try to try to win um incredibly you know unusual uh when that rocking started i thought people were just stomping their feet on the upper deck and that that was causing the vibration in the stadium shortly realized it was probably an earthquake and tried to get in the door jam you know as they tell us to do you know, Ron, from being in the Bay Area, it's funny. If you're in more than one earthquake, you don't recognize them the same because you're usually in a different place. You can be in a right. car, you can be in a high-rise building, you can be walking on the street, and they all have a different effect based on where you experience them. But, uh, you know, at Candlestick at that time, there wasn't any obvious damage. The lights went out, but there wasn't any obvious damage. And until we started getting television reports of damage to the uh, Bay Bridge and uh, the uh, the freeways that uh, was everybody was kind of exhilarated and then this uh, uh, dampening effect took place and we all realized how serious it was um, from a baseball standpoint what a lot of people don't know is that uh, you know in that series four games we only used two starting pitchers which is incredibly unusual for any four-game series. But uh, because of the gap, we only used two starting pitchers, Mike Moore and uh, um, Dave Stewart. Uh, Bob Welch was supposed to start that third game, but he was hurt, and we weren't sure he was going to be able to pitch. And uh, 
And as it turned out, we don't think he would have been able to pitch. Welsh was, you know, great that year, as he was all most of his career with the A's. Um, uh, and Kurt Young was going to have to pitch that game. But um, uh, those are the kinds of, you know, little details that most people don't probably even – I'm not sure how well publicized that has been since then, but there were a lot of little quirks about that um, that series that emanated from the, from the earthquake. Sandy Alderson is with us. When we come back on the other side, we'll talk about his stint with Major League Baseball as one of the top executives and the rest of his career as we continue on America's Sports Talk Show. You're listening to Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Sandy Alderson is with us here on Sports Byline USA. I've talked about him being the uh, head of baseball operations, and then you made a decision to leave and go to New York and to the Major League office. What was behind that decision? Well, I think there were a couple of things. First of all, um, uh, you know, Billy Bean had been my assistant for a period of time, and in 1997, uh, or after the 97 season, I thought, you know, Billy's been tremendously loyal to me. He's qualified. He needs to take over this general manager's job. So he did that. I remained as president of the team. But, um, you know, the opportunity came in late 98 to join the commissioner's office at a time when uh, Commissioner Seelig was putting together a central office that had never really existed before. You probably recall that for many years there was an American League office, a National League office, and a lot of the responsibilities for the game resided in those two offices. Seelig uh, decided to combine all of those into one commissioner's office. And so, among other things, I ended up taking over supervision of the umpires. So, it was, you know, for me it was partly about uh, having a – broader responsibility, broader perspective on the game and, and able to learn uh, uh, additional elements at, at the at the league level. Uh, part of it was the desire to live in New York for a while and just experience that. And we did enjoy it for uh, it was like six and a half years that I was there. Um, and also just be, you know, be exposed to um, uh, uh, additional people and it was a change you know growing up as a military brat as i said earlier um you're used to change and maybe even uh need change and so i've been i've been with oakland for 17 years and just and thought that it was a good time to to uh, uh take that opportunity which was offered and and uh decided to go Oakland, San Diego and New York with the Mets uh, individual teams league office what is the difference in the perspective as to way an individual team looks at baseball as compared to the league office? Well, certainly at the club level, uh, you're, ta- you're talking about a game every night and a game that's important to you individually. And so there's an, this emotional involvement that goes way beyond 
kind of the administrative uh, uh, activity that is involved at the league level. I mean, there's you know there's passion for the game at, at in both capacities, but when you're with a team, you're li- you live and die with that team, and uh, that happens on a you know daily, nightly basis. You can't get away from it. Uh, at the league level, um, not quite the same emotional strain on a day-to-day basis. Um, it's more sort of periodic when things get uh, difficult or big issues come up. Um, you know, one of the interesting things about baseball generally is that, you know, it's very high profile. It's not that important in the overall scheme of things. It's like college athletics. You know, in the, in the life of an institution of higher learning, athletics shouldn't be that significant. But but for some reason, because of who we are as people and how we enjoy, you know, our fandom, it becomes sort of disproportionate and um, and so very important. But um, I've kind of enjoyed that aspect of it. Um, there's public scrutiny uh, that comes with a job and a and a need to be um, you know, cognizant of the impact that what you do, whether it running with, whether as a, you know, as a club with a group of fans or with an institution like baseball, that has a long history that there's a, there's a, there's a certain amount of responsibility associated with that. I've I've always enjoyed that. I've always enjoyed um, trying to represent other people. One of the things about being with the A's and Padres and the Mets, it's a great feeling when you win in part because, you know, it's made a lot of people happy and, uh, uh, that that's been one of the great parts of being involved in the game. Let me touch on a couple of other issues and briefly get some thoughts from you about it, because you have been outspoken about uh, how you see baseball today. Uh, Derek Jeter uh, obviously came out recently and said that uh, it's just shameful the way the two sides uh, got involved with negotiations. And this acrimony has existed for a long time. Tell me about the relations between Major League Baseball and the Players Association. Why has it gotten nasty? Why has it gotten difficult? Well, you know, it's it's been nasty and difficult since I got involved. I got involved in 1981, and that was a strike year, as I, as I recall. So, you know, until recently, until, say, um, the early 2000s, um, strikes, work stoppages, lockouts were always a strong possibility in connection with uh, bargaining between the players and owners. Uh, in recent years, uh, that what became, um, it became less contentious, but recently uh, has become more so. I think one of the reasons is that uh, the players believe, and to some extent I think there's some validity to this, that that the recent collective bargaining hasn't gone well for them, uh, you know, in terms of uh, whether it's the luxury tax or um, the way that uh, uh, free agents have been treated. And I think this is a function of analytics. You know, what's happened over the last few years is that most clubs think exactly the same way. And it's not because they're talking to each other and colluding. It's because the analytics point them in the same direction uh, in terms of efficiency, in terms of probability. Uh, 
everybody is sort of like-minded. They're looking for the same player. They're prepared to pay about the same amount. And as a result, um, you know, we've, we've seen significant changes in the way, for example, free agents are um, recruited. Free agents today are not as attractive as they used to be. Why? I think part of it is because analytics tell us that, you know, the aging curve is real, is real and players are not as um, productive in later years. Um, uh, who knows? It's conceivable that steroids led players to be more productive in their later years previously, and now that's not happening. Um, but the bottom line is that, you know, clubs tend to think the same way, and the players um, feel as if they're not appreciated. And it's, you know, if you look at any industry where seniority is rewarded um, and then it's not, um, you, you know, you end up with problems. So I'm not surprised at the acrimony now. I'm a little disappointed that there was so much acrimony over a relatively less significant issue uh like this season with coronavirus as opposed to a you know a long-term collective bargaining agreement i think there was way too much um acrimony this year than there needed to be but this has been with us for a long time and uh i don't think it's going i don't think this uh unhappiness um is going away Briefly, uh, tell me a little bit of how you see the rule changes that they're trying to implement in baseball, because I think they have to be very care- uh, careful because there is a character about baseball. There is a history about baseball that has made it the American pastime. And are they tinkering too much or are they just looking for some answers? Honestly, Ron, I don't think they're tinkering enough. <laughs> oh, interesting. And here's, here's, here's my, here's my take on it. Uh, you know, and, and, predicate for this is what we've been discussing before. I think most front offices think exactly the same way today. And therefore, the strategy and in-game tactics from from day to day, from team to team, are essentially the same. And this is borne out by uh, studies on probability and uh, success rates, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you're not going to get rid of analytics. You're not going to get rid of data. Uh, you're not going to get rid of, of uh, technology. And so to me, the way to reset the game, and I'm speaking a little bit uh, um, to an extreme here, but to make a point, the way that you int- reintroduce uncertainty, surprise, uh, alternative tactics to the game is change the rules. Uh, because we've squeezed everything out of the existing rules. Um, uh Shifts, outfield or infield shifts are a perfect example for me. I don't like infield shifts for two reasons. One is they they have caused us rather than you know the the response to a shift is not to go the other way. Why? Because going the other way doesn't it doesn't enhance the probability of succeeding when scoring runs. It just doesn't or enough runs, and that's why clubs don't foster that approach. What what is the best way to attack the shift is to hit the ball over the head of the infielder and that and and hit the ball out of the park. But to defeat the shift, we don't go the other way. We try to lift the ball, and so that has led led to sort of a one-dimensional um, uh, approach to the game. And that's just one example of of that 
uh, lack of, of uh, dimension. The second reason I would do it is symbol, as symbolism, to get the front offices off the field. The, the shifts are a direct product of front office influence on the tactics on the game. And I understand you're never going to eliminate that. But as a symbol of saying, get the heck off the field, getting rid of the shifts would do it. So more broadly, I think the, 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 the rules need to be changed a little bit. So, for example, if you made it more, if you made it easier to steal a base, uh, then we might have more stolen bases. Because right now, stolen bases don't match up to home runs. And so anytime there's an opportunity to steal a base, a lot of managers will say, no, I'm not going to do it. I don't want to take the chance. This guy might hit a two-run homer. But if the chances that a guy could steal went from, say, 60% up to 80%, now we might see people, teams doing it. And people like to see stolen bases. They, they like home runs, too. So I'm not suggesting we get rid of home runs. But they like stolen bases. They like triples. They like you know a little bit of action and suspense. But you're not going to see that if the probabilities, probability of scoring a run or scoring runs isn't comparable among these various strategies. And in order to make these various strategies comparable, we have to tinker with the rules to get them there, uh, you know, on a, on a comparable level. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense to me. I I can see what you're talking about. We only have 90 seconds left, Sandy, and I want to, I ask this question of a lot of athletes and people that I interview, and that is when you think back on your career, what is that one moment that is kind of engraved in Sandy Alderson's mind that he'll never forget? Two. Um, well, in a positive sense, it would probably be uh, sharing the World Series trophy with uh, Walter Haas. Back in 1989. Uh, in terms of disappointing moments, <laughs> I've got a few, <laughs> but we'll probably start with uh, uh, Kirk Gibson hitting a home run against Dennis Eckersley in the uh, first game of the 1988 World Series, uh, which cost us a game, set the tone, and I think uh, um, uh, led to a World Series loss. But that was a that was a striking moment too. In about 45 seconds, when you think back about the trail that you took in life with baseball, do you kind of shake your head at some times? Well, it's improbable, um, certainly, and, and especially at that time, because I was really the only non-traditional um, GM, if you will, uh, at that time. So it was, a, it was a different role, and I credit Roy for allowing me to, to do it. Um, Otherwise, in my career, I've never really had a plan. It's mostly I've done what I've enjoyed, and I've done what, and, and with people that I've really liked and enjoyed, had fun with. And uh, I think if, if there were any goal on my part, it was to do something well, try to be excellent at whatever you're doing, uh, as opposed to thinking about what you're going to be doing next. I never really, uh, I never really had a long-term plan i don't think um i spent my time trying to do a good job at what i was doing and hope that things would uh develop from there well i'll leave you with this roy eisenhart told me why he hired you was that it's easier to be smart and learn baseball than to know baseball and learn to be smart 
high compliment for you, Sandy. Thank you very much for the time. Uh, Our friendship is something I cherish very much. Take care. My best to you. All right, Ron. Take care. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for calling. Sandy Alderson. Again, I've known him for 40 years, and boy, he has done quite a job in baseball. You have been listening to Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast on the 8Side Network. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.